Hello and welcome to the second episode of Psychology in Mind. Today's topic, can we trust our memories? Or are they lies? But they're by elves. Um, I'm Gareth Stack, uh, writer and broadcaster, and I'm joined, as always, or at least as the last episode and this episode, by Dr. Andrew P. Allen. We're here uh, today with our guest, Richard Roach, who's a senior lecturer at uh, Maynooth University, the Department of Psychology. And uh, yeah, so I'm currently working with uh, Richard Roach as well. Cool. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Richard, do you want to talk a bit about your work and your background? Um, Yeah, so uh, I'm in the psychology department in Maynooth. um, But my background is kind of straddled psychology and neuroscience. So my PhD was in neuroscience. and one of the main things I'm interested in, amongst other things, is memory and how memory works, um, how it's represented in the brain, how we can retain our memory as we get older, what happens when it doesn't work properly. So all these questions around memory, how it operates, when it's functioning well and when it's not. And you guys are working on a study together at the moment. Can you t- talk a bit about that? Yeah, so we're, we're working on a, a two-year project looking at reminiscence therapy with older people and later with people in the early stages of dementia um, to see if reminiscence therapy, a weekly uh, course of active and semi-structured remembering of childhood events or events from the past, can offer benefits in terms of people's memory, in terms of people's mood, their levels of anxiety, their general sense of well-being and quality of life. And to test if reminiscence therapy is effective in all of these areas with a, a pre-post type of design and with some scanning as well, some brain scanning before and after a six-week course of reminiscence therapy. So reminiscence therapy is just like a structured recalling of different events in their lives in the past? Yeah, it operates in, in a group setting where we've got groups in different parts of Dublin, which are run by Andrew and Keelan, our research assistant. And we have a sort of semi-structured format to them where they will be asked to remember certain events from, say, early childhood, from school, from adolescence, things like maybe First Communions or weddings or family Christmases. And in some cases, we ask about general events of historical interest, like, say, the Pope's visit or John F. Kennedy's visit back in, in the 60s. What's the thought behind this or what's the preliminary sort of result of this kind of research? Has it been shown that people thinking about their own lives and thinking about these kinds of historical incidents that that they then find that their well-being and their memory in general has improved? Um, Yeah, there's been quite a bit of work done with reminiscence therapy and there are different forms of reminiscence therapy, obviously. But in general, it seems that people who engage in this type of practice seem to show either benefits to things like memory and attention, so cognitive benefits, Or we see benefits to mood and anxiety levels and general feeling of self-worth or both. So it seems that it's it's very rare that it has no positive effects. Now, a lot of this work has been done in places like Hong Kong and Japan. Not so much of it has been done here, but that's why we're we're investigating it. Um, I think one of the ideas behind it is to do with, I suppose, neuroplasticity and the fact that rehearsing these brain mechanisms and activating these circuits that are involved in autobiographical recall will somehow act to keep those networks and circuits in good shape and healthy and less prone to decay decay and decline as as people get older so it seems really i suppose obvious but the idea that practicing using your memory might keep your memory in good shape is i suppose at the the root of of this idea so you mentioned it's it's a group process and how much of the benefits are um pro like the social interaction and how much is you know like you said this just kind of reactivating the memory circuits probably huge yeah um i mean in theory you can do this in isolation or you know on a one-on-one basis but i think the group dynamic definitely seems to add something to the experience and andrew can talk about that in more i suppose concrete terms because he's been running the groups so have you found that the social aspect is uh is is a big factor um, I think yeah, when when you see people kind of interacting in that group dynamic, um, you do see that they start to feed off each other's memories. So, um, you know, as a as a younger person, like uh, people kind of talk talk about their memories in a slightly different way than they would when they're kind of speaking to kind of people that would be more kind of their their own peer group, kind of age wise. Um, so it, I suppose being able to kind of play off each other and kind of use one person's memory to to cue. Uh, a memory or to set off uh, act as a trigger for another memory and another person can be quite uh, uh, I think that can act as a good kind of prompt for for 
kind of those kind of autobiographical memories or memories of events. And do you, do you see the groups just from your own perspective? Do they do the people in them, the elderly people involved, do they come become more alive over the process? <laughs> Not that they're zombies, <laughs> but do do they do they show benefits? Like, are they enjoying it and growing from it? I think they're very yeah, they're very uh, engaged with it. Like, I mean, I suppose um, we try to kind of focus on positive memories, and mm. um, I suppose even kind of happy times kind of have kind of mixed kind of emotional kind of uh, uh, valence to them. But I think they they are very um, the people who are getting involved are very kind of switched on or very engaged kind of in the in the process and I think they do yeah they, they do report really enjoying the the process as well I think there's an interesting kind of interaction between kind of mood and memory as well so uh, I mean if you look at say major depression for example there's evidence that autobiographical memory loses a lot of its kind of or can become quite over generalized in people who are suffering from depression or it can so what do you mean by over generalized so there's evidence that people with with depression can have lose some of the kind of um um specific kind of details associated with say specific memories from say a, a particular event from from the past so um we can talk about kind of the difference between say um semantic memory which is say memories for say f- facts uh, or episodic memory which is memory for uh, say specific details about a particular occurrence uh, which is often kind of located in a particular time and and, uh, and space so I think Richard was mentioning how you could you could potentially so benefits both kind of in terms of mood as well as memory but I think there could be kind of an interaction between the two whereby um by kind of lessening say feelings of uh, depression or whether that's which could be subclinical kind of feelings of depression could potentially have a beneficial knock-on effect on memory so it could i suppose that would partly be because it, the, the emotional state that you're in is going to tie into the kind of memories that can be recalled would that be yeah i mean emotional context seems to be a big factor in what will come back to you spontaneously or what you'll be able to remember and that feeds into the the bigger question of how context so remembering where you were who was there how you felt the sights and sounds and smells and all these different sensory aspects of an event all combined to form what we call a memory which kind of gets into the nature of what a memory really is i suppose well that's that's a great transition let's go to that so from a psychological point of view i mean it's a broad question but like what are some of the ways that memory has been defined and thought about uh, especially how do they differ from how we think about memory and what's the we'll get into the um, the mechanics behind that the neuroscience behind it but what is what is memory yeah it's it's a really interesting question and it's a it's quite a big one um because it, there seems to be we have ways of thinking about memory that may not necessarily be accurate and if you look at the language we use when we discuss memory we talk about memory storage or memory retrieval or recollection so we create this idea that memory is like some sort of a, a warehouse or a repository where things are placed, memories or events are put almost like on a shelf. And when we want to remember something, we have this imagery that we somehow go to this place wherever it is and retrieve or recollect or find this memory. And this is perpetuated in um, films like um, Inside Out, where memories are represented as those sort of balls on shelves. And there's lots of other examples where we we can view memory as being like a library or we can view it being like a storehouse or a warehouse or in other cases the other analogy to memory is it's like a computer storage where we store a file in a folder and when we want to open that file we navigate to it and we reopen it and it seems like that's not really how memory works in the brain when it's represented neurally um so when i'm teaching about it i like to say that memory is not really like watching a dvd So if you watch a DVD over and over again, the film that you see will be identical every time you watch it. So whatever it happens to be, um, Casablanca, let's say, you can watch it a thousand times and the film will not change as a result of having watched it over and over again. But what seems to happen is when we remember something, the brain areas that were active at the time of the event, a lot of them become active again. So areas that were involved for the visual part of a memory, for what you saw at the time, what you heard, what you felt, what you could smell or taste, all these different sensory areas. A lot of those areas become active again when you remember it. So in a way, a memory is more like an internal reliving of a past event. 
So I like to say rather than a DVD, it's more like going to see a play on multiple times. So every time you go and see the play, the gist will be the same, but it could the performance could vary from night to night. Someone might forget their lines or improvise something. Something might go wrong. Subtle details will change. So it's much more like repeated viewings of a play than of a DVD, which doesn't alter. So that's in terms of the recall of memory, but in terms of actually laying memory down, psychologists have classified it in different ways, um, declarative, uh, autobiographical, th- things like that. Uh, how, how, um, how concrete are those categories? How, how meaningful is it to do that? And are they, is that just a useful tool in research or is the brain doing different things when we lay down different kinds of memories? Um, well, there's a bit of both. I suppose that they are useful in terms of how we divide up our research questions and what aspects of memory we focus on but qualitatively those there are different types of memories our, our memory for how to tie our laces or ride a bicycle or play an instrument is a very different type of memory to remembering a childhood birthday party for example which is also a different type of memory to the sort of knowledge you draw on in a pub quiz where you have to remember who was the first man on the moon or who scored the winning goal in you know, a particular FA Cup final, let's say. So they do seem to have different properties. They're qualitatively different in terms of how we experience them. And at the same time, they seem to be represented with different brain systems and brain networks. Mm -hmm. So I think both, they're useful for research purposes and for research questions, but the nature of memories is very different. And there, there are multiple types, including ones we haven't spoken about, like prospective memory, where you have to remember you need to do something in the future. So there are many forms of memory. I suppose it's getting into the issues about what this memory trace looks like in the brain and what yeah. what the engram is. And that was the sort of elusive thing that they were looking at in the 50s. Yeah. People like Carl Lashley was trying to find the physical representation of a memory in the brain. So he trained rats to navigate through a maze to find a food reward. And he decided if he trained the rats to, to learn this route very, you know, very effectively, he could then go in and make incisions in the rat's brain in the hopes of severing that pathway that he thought he'd created um, and it, he wasn't able to do it. it it just wouldn't work now the reason for that is maybe because a memory when it's represented in the brain isn't a physical chain it's not a physical network of connections it's to do with activating areas in synchrony and I suppose what you do in optogenetics is you you tag these areas that are active in in a memory formation and then artificially induce them which makes the rat re-experience the memory because he cowers expecting a shock or expecting some sort of fear stimulus. So it's probably, and I'm going to use another analogy, which isn't perfect, but it's almost like trying to damage a piano and say you've disrupted a particular piece of music. You know, it, it's not just the physical apparatus, it's the sequence in which things are activated that produces, you know, that particular piece of music. So, mm-hmm. or destroying a computer keyboard and saying you've destroyed your essay. Which which all t- I mean, ties back to the whole question of whether... Um, a brain function of any kind or even something like consciousness is located in a part of the brain rather than being a pattern of activation I think was it a Hebsian cell assembly is the old neuroscience term but you're I think you're talking about something slightly different where something isn't uh, it's not just um, A fires and then B fires and then F- C fires it, whether they're brain regions or neurons it's, it's also that just um, areas activating at the same time together can represent a pattern mm. well that goes back to that idea of what a memory is because if it's an internal reliving of an event, then you'll want to be able to re-experience the sights and the sounds and the smells. So you'll need visual areas, auditory areas, olfactory areas, all active in and around the same time to allow you to re-experience what you saw, what you heard, who was there, how you felt, what you could taste and smell. So it's to do with maybe synchronous activation of disparate regions. And do we know what's the executive, what's the guiding um area or um process that that decides okay i'm going to light up this this area which is containing this smell engram this part which has the sight of mother as she passes from this world whatever what what is it that decides that well one region that we know is crucial for that is hippocampus um because if your hippocampus isn't intact or if it's not working properly you won't be able to make new memories or remember new events and there are classic case studies of patients like hm who had surgery where his hippocampi were removed in 1953 and for the rest of his life was not able to make any new episodic memories. So he couldn't remember any new personal events that had happened to him. 
And this guy is the inspiration for um, Memento. Memento. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which which is a, f- a fabulous film. Um, now the thing is, he could learn new skills, so he could learn new motor f- skills like mirror drawing and various other motor functions. But he couldn't remember having done them before. So anything that happened to him personally, or any new facts that he was told, he would forget within about 15, 20 minutes, um, right up until his death in 2008. So from 1953 until 2008, he couldn't remember anything new, but he could learn to do new motor type skills. Which, which I guess shows that there is a, a specific distinction in the brain between uh, memories that we're aware of and procedural things that we're learning to do or to, to, to act in certain ways. Yeah, it's a whole separate set of structures like basal ganglia and cerebellum seem to be important for these motor type activities like driving or playing an instrument. So do you have synesthesia yourself, is that correct? Um, yeah, I've got a very boring, normal, run-of-the-mill type of synesthesia. So. Do you want to define really quickly what synesthesia is for anyone who isn't familiar with that wonderful... Uh, <laughs> Super, superpower. Um, yeah, it, it's a, a sort of um, relatively rare condition where people have sensory experiences where the sensory modalities, say vision and auditory or olfactory, somehow cross over in ways that they don't in most people. So extreme cases would be people who experience taste when they hear particular words or sounds, people who see colours when they hear particular music or different notes. Um, the more everyday type are things like having colored letters of the alphabet or colored days of the week colored numbers um so I've, I've got a fairly you know standard type where i just have colored days of the week so wednesday is just yellow and it's a, a yellow thing that in the same way a banana is a yellow thing you're just conscious that it's something that's yellow um so i'd be what they call a an associator type synesthete where i just i'm aware of the connection between say Monday and a sort of bluey green color it's a genetically based um, condition so my sister has it as well and she would be a projector so she visually experiences the color in front of her when somebody says Wednesday she experiences blue now she's obviously wrong because Wednesday is yellow but some projectors experience the experience in the world itself whereas associators are just conscious that it's a a strong link or a strong association do you think that's do you think that's had any implica- effect on your memory or do you um, do you find particular aspects of your memory are strong with, with regard to kind of vision or color? I don't, I don't think so. I've, I've got a pretty good memory, but I don't know if the, the synesthesia has any impact on that. Um, I've got a, a, what they call a number form as well, where I've got abstract shapes associated with, with numbers and digits. Um, and definitely, definitely when I was in school, in primary school, that helped with learning to add um, because the shapes interact with each other when you try to add numbers together. But I don't know if it have any particular impact on, on memory that I'm aware of. Now, in some synesthetes, it may well do. And you know, I've met synesthetes who experience colours for musical notes, and it's allowed them to learn to play instruments by ear. Um, and they can pick out when something is out of key because the colours are wrong. So there are lots of benefits for some types of synesthetes in, in different aspects of life. Synesthesia is fascinating for so many reasons and I suppose one of the main for me one of the most interesting things about it is it's it's only sort of been acknowledged as a as a as a category so, so recently which implies that there are many ways in which we're neurodiverse that are invisible simply because we don't have the language to perceive that the differences exist or to communicate to one another that they exist yeah I mean it was Galton who was the first person to really stumble on it but even after he had documented it right up until probably the 80s there was a lot of controversy and suspicion around it and a lot of people thought it was just <sighs> synesthetes had very vivid imaginations and they were making up this stuff um, but more recently they've they've scanned the brains of synesthetes and there seem to be structural differences the colours people have associated with different numbers and letters are extremely reliable and consistent across time and we had a case study uh, a couple of years ago where we had encountered um, a couple of remarkable synesthetes who had lost their synesthesia through different events happening to them. Um, in one case, one of our subjects had been taking um, anti-anxiety medication for about 10 years and his synesthesia completely went away during this time. Um, now he had colored experiences of music and he had colored auras around people based on people he knew, he experienced colors around them. Our other subject in that um, case study had a very similar type of synesthesia and she lost it as a result of, first of all, she had um, viral meningitis, uh, which kind of changed her experience of her synesthesia a little bit. 
She then had a really unlucky run of four concussions over the course of a few years, which also dampened her experience. And then she was really unfortunate. She was hit by lightning in a really freak accident where she was in a metal porter cabin and lightning hit the cabin and her hand was on the windowsill and it blasted her across the room. Uh, she's fine now, she was okay. But after the lightning strike, her synesthesia completely disappeared. But again, in both of them, it came back afterwards and there was a really high consistency of the colours associated with different notes from before and from afterwards. So there is some sort of possibly hardwired representation of these associations and experiences on a, a neural level. Well, just before we move off this, I, I find it intuitive to understand how someone could have um, uh, auditory associations could, because sound is something experienced from even prenatally and in the developing brain and stuff. But for yours, with the days, days of the week, that's something that you don't learn maybe until two or three years old. How could that have been locked in as a permanent? Uh, yeah, there are a bunch of theories about this. Um, and one of them, I mean, there's a, there's a, a famous study where they've looked at a lot of what they call them um, grapheme color synesthetes, where they have, say, colored uh, colored alphabet. And for some reason, in a lot of them, there's a very close match between the colors that they have for the letters and the particular colored letters in a Fisher Price um, alphabet magnet set that was on sale back in the 70s. So a lot of these kids would have been exposed to the set of alphabet magnets that were stuck on fridges where A was red and B was blue and various colours, they seem to match up very strongly. Now, in my case, I can remember particularly in a couple of, of cases for days like Monday and maybe Wednesday, particular things I was exposed to about the age of like four or five, where I associated something about Wednesday with the colour yellow. I think in that case, there was a, a children's programme on every Wednesday and the main character had a bright yellow dress. And for some reason that stuck with me in terms of being what Wednesday was about. Now, also around that age period, maybe four or five, there's a lot of dendritic growth and quite a bit of pruning takes place. So it's quite possible that around that time of this big you know, neural growth spurt, these associations are somehow laid down very strongly and they stay with the synesthetes for you know, decades and the rest of, of their lives. Synaptic pruning. So some some connections are sort of pruned out and, and go away and some are strengthened. Now, in the case of cross-modal ones, like hearing colours or, you know, seeing music, it's possible that that pruning doesn't happen across these modalities. Whereas for an associator like me, it's possible that particular associations are just laid down very strongly during that time of dendritic or neural growth. So these connections become very strongly laid down and last a long time. It, it seems like in the in the case of the first the cross modal um, associations, that maybe there uh, there's a potential in in future to use genetic or drug therapies to to actually increase the amount of people that have these this during this period because if these things have concrete uses like with mathematical ability and language ability or music i'm actually someone on our uh, course in college was it was a very accomplished musician and had um this kind of cross-modal association between color and music and um, maybe it's something that we should be encouraging through through you know through various means mm, anti-eugenics let's, let's have more synesthetes yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would be in favor of that <laughs> Let's move on to the thorny area of the un unreliability of memory. Um, so we're we're used in a everyday context and a, a, even in a legal context to thinking about memory as you mentioned earlier, Richard, something that you yeah, a store that you open up, like a, a film that you watch, a drawer that you open, something that might be foggy or difficult to access, but is basically attempting to chip away at a core of truth that's stored within the person but as we mentioned already that's not how memory works and there's a lot of research uh, which calls into question how we uh, remember and to what extent that has any reliability at all yeah, so i suppose a lot of this goes to you know this kind of classic work of uh, elizabeth loftus who kind of I she kind of talk quite a, a bit about kind of interesting case studies uh, where someone so one example she, she would give is where there was um, someone might be falsely accused of having committed a crime. So the person who is making the accusation um, at an initial phase, when, at a first interview, um, they would be shown a number of, say, uh, a lineup of different faces. And they would say that person was the closest, but they might not be sure at that initial interview. But then over a number of, say, weeks or months as the interviews continue and as the person kind of reconstructs what happens, by the end, they become increasingly confident that this person who was initially described as being the closest match, 
they become very confident that this person was in fact the one who committed the crime and there's a, there's a great anecdotal example of something like that uh, in the case of the Unabomber and it was actually in the Netflix series which came on recently where the famous picture that was spread of the Unabomber which we can have all probably seen of him wearing the hoodie and so on was not of the Unabomber it was of this initial police sketch artist who who actually had sat down with the witness so their first sketch that they did with the sketch artist was of the person that they'd seen but then they did a second sketch several weeks later and they described the sketch artist yeah it, it it goes back to i suppose the nature of memory and the fact that it's not a fixed thing that we can revisit um and again in, in some lovely experiments from elizabeth loftus she's demonstrated that even the way a question is phrased can influence what people think they remember so the the classic example is she took a, a group of people and showed them a video of a car accident and later she got them to act as witnesses to the event and half the people, she one of the questions she asked was, do you remember seeing a lot of broken glass when the cars collided? And the other half of the group, she asked the same question, but instead of saying the word collided, she said when they smashed into each other. Now, the group who heard the word smashed into each other recalled seeing more broken glass in the video than the group who heard the word collided. In reality, there was no broken glass in the crash at all, but they thought they remembered seeing broken glass everywhere based on how she posed the question to them which kind of really emphasizes this reconstructive nature of memory that we try and recall these events but things that we learn afterwards things that we hear subsequently and even things that we hear much much later can somehow creep into our memory or what we think is our memory of the event and so this doesn't just apply to people who like me might have a, a self-confessed poor memory Andrew you found a study which studied people with uh, what's known as highly superior autobiographical memory I love how value laden that is uh, <laughs> so this is a quite a recent study and uh, their memory proved to be quite unreliable as well do you want to talk a bit about that well this is yeah well this is kind of interesting in terms of I suppose showing um, perhaps a dissociation between different types of memory so at the, the beginning we were kind of talking about how there's different types of memory um but even within, I suppose, um, autobiographical memory, this showed perhaps a dissociation between uh, being able to um, being very good at correctly remembering true or recalling true memories. Um, but but then dissociating that from not remembering false memories or recognizing them as being false memories. So people um, with highly superior autobiographical memory um there's, it's a very select group of people, so it's they've been studied. You know, often the studies might have you know a few dozen people after kind of searching, you know, a whole nation or whatever. But these are people whereby you could say to them, um, "Can you recall what happened on November the twelfth, uh, nineteen ninety six?" And they'd say, "Oh yeah, I remember. I was going to visit my aunt, and I saw." Even though they the were born ten years later, they said, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah," but they could, you know, they remember. Oh yeah, I went to visit my aunt, and we had, uh, you know, boiled eggs on toast for like lunch. And I, there was a story on on the news about about um, you know a plane crash or whatever. So, and you would you would imagine someone who had that level of memory that that it would be reliable since they're so readily able to produce it. Yeah, so they're clearly able to. They're very strong at being able to produce true memories like and they you know they would check with so say when they produced these stories i mean obviously the thing about lunch they might not be able to corroborate but then when they said the story about having seen the plane crash you could go back to the uh, the archives and you would see that that story was there but what was interesting was was that uh, a number of researchers took people uh, with this condition for want of a better word and they ran them through a number of different uh, memory tests so they use one kind of a, a kind of a drier kind of cognitive uh, test uh, the uh, the uh, Dees Rodiger McDermott paradigm where they have to say learn uh, a new uh, a list of words and so they're given say 10 different words and say you might have nurse and hospital in there and then they're asked afterwards to uh, they're shown a list of words and asked whether that was in the original list or not and they might have a few um, what you call critical lures so uh, say if nurse and hospital was was in the original list you might have doctor there and uh, what they found was that people with highly superior autobiographical memory seemed to be uh, pretty much as vulnerable to these kind of critical lures. But they used other tests as well. Where so so they, they were able yeah. to remember the list of words, but they would also remember words that weren't there. Is that Exactly. Words which were kind of conceptually similar to the words that had been on the original list. But they did it with other other kind of memory tests as well. They showed that, say, if they they could kind of implant a kind of a false memory related to uh, say an image of a plane crash for example or that had happened say X number of years ago that they could uh, 
you could use kind of lures like this to create false memories, even in people who are very good at, incredibly good at remembering true autobiographical memories from, you know, decades in the past. So it was kind of interesting in showing that, that you know, there, there, is, there seems to be some kind of dissociation between uh, having very strong ability to remember uh, true memories, but nonetheless having that vulnerability to, to, to false memory, despite this amazing kind of ability to remember mm. true memories. Yeah, there, there are some really famous cases of false memories. Um, one of them is a lovely example from Oliver Sacks, who told the story of himself having a really clear, vivid memory of being a child in London during the Blitz and a bomb gone off at the end of their street and, you know, the chaos and broken glass and rubble and everything as a result of this bomb being dropped during the, the Blitz. And years later, it, it emerged that he wasn't in London at the time. The parents had sent him out to the country, wow. like the, the children in the Narnia books. So he was away <laughs> somewhere, but had in heard Narnia. about it in, in, through a wardrobe somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But he had heard about this later from his parents and from his elder siblings who had recounted it, and it had become a memory for him probably through constant repetitions and hearing people talk about it. And there's another, there's a couple of more recent cases um, which have kind of emerged through Reddit communities. And it's led to this phenomenon being called the Nelson Mandela effect, where there's a large community of people on various Reddit boards who are convinced that they remember a news story in around about 1988 or 89 hearing that Nelson Mandela had died in prison, in captivity. Now, he was released from prison in 91, I think, or maybe 90. Um, So he obviously didn't die while he was captive, but they're convinced that they remember the news story reporting his death. And some people claim this is evidence of a glitch in the matrix, this artificial reality we're all in. But it's it's a phenomenon that's surfaced in other areas as well. Um, So there's one other nice example. And again, Reddit seems to be a a breeding ground for these conspiracy theories where people share these memories. And in one case, there's a a memory people have of a a children's movie from the late 90s, maybe mid to late 90s, starring the American comedian Sinbad. They seem to remember him being in a film called Shazam, where he played a, a genie in a bottle type character. And they've got very vivid recollection of the cover of the video box and he had you know the alibaba hat and a purple background um now the actor himself sinbad was never in that film he maintains he never took part in a film called shazam he never played a genie it's not on his imdb list of of appearances there was a film called kazam in that era which had i think shaquille o'neal played a genie and the cover seems to be very similar to what people seem to remember of being his his movie um, and then to make things worse Sinbad himself went to a Halloween party as a genie just to confuse everyone <laughs> but it seems to be the case that people may have associated this film with maybe his name is associated with these types of you know Aladdin type stories and conflated the two or combined the two into this false memory of something that never happened that's interesting um, on so many levels uh, that that they have this kind of coherent cultural memory and it brings into question the role of cultural memory which we haven't even mentioned um, I suppose there's another of that ilk. There's another interesting one in the the Polybius myth, um, if you whether you've heard of it or not. Um, so Polybius is this arcade game that supposedly made uh, children sick in arcades in California in the early 1980s. In California in the 80s, uh, was, was sort of one of these hotbeds of arcade gaming, like Japan, Akihabara, or something like that. So they would regularly roll out a new machine maybe unlabeled and leave it there for people to try see how it did and so on and but there's this kind of legend that kids were getting sick and that maybe there were you know black uh, suited fbi guys in the background watching this that that it was some sort of government experiment but it seems to be a coherence uh, in a way that so many of these um uh, myths are uh, uh, these urban myths of a variety of things that are true so there were you know experiments carried out in humans mk ultra would be the famous one by the cia uh, like lots of uh, eminent psychologists were, were horribly unfortunately involved in that um, and and those went on into the 80s and then you did have these strange arcade machines coming and going and all this kind of stuff but it's so many people thousands of people remember having seen these machines and uh, there's actually a really interesting and fun and very well done uh, radio drama series uh, called polybius which uh, radiotopia did uh, this year um, and it's it's all about this and it's supposed to be a real documentary looking into it but it actually turns out to be fictional which ties into the whole nature of false memory and stuff it's really really fun uh, but um, so there's another study um, Andrew that you put up um, yeah so I thought this was kind of this this was kind of interesting in terms of there's um, 
there does seem to be some disagreement among um, psychologists who are doing research in this area about how easy it is to to implant false memories. So th- there clearly is, you know, pretty clear um, anecdotal evidence that that people do, you know, can develop these kind of false memories. But um, I suppose it was more they were raising kind of methodological concerns about how some of this this research is conducted. So this was kind of based on some research that had been done by some British and, and Canadian psychologists. And they were, they were quite skilled at interviewing, like if you, if you see some, some of the work they were doing, whereby they would begin by putting the person in a particular time and context by asking them to, to imagine themselves as a 14-year-old. So the person is starting to create kind of some relatively vivid, you know, presumably true autobiographical memories. And then they would start to implant these kind of false memories of them having uh, committed some kind of crime. So, I mean, the original research um, suggested that they, they could uh, induce these kind of false memories in more than half of participants. But I suppose the, the reanalysis of the data has, has kind of highlighted that some of the, the, the methods that they were using, they would ask, the, 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 in the, the original researchers would ask them to tell me everything you can remember to, from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And then the person would start to report on what they could, uh, what they could remember of this false memory. But I suppose in the reanalysis, what they were showing was that sometimes people would say things in a kind of a speculative kind of way. So they would have this kind of mental imagery of this this idea that they had committed a crime and they would start to kind of recall, well, they would start to say these details, but then they would start to call it into question as well. So then they would start to say, I think that's what happened or um, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the mental imagery they had. But um, they were suggesting that the way it was coded would suggest that they had a strong subjective sense that this was a true memory, whereas there might be some conflation between what the person was reporting in terms of they could imagine this was what happened. Versus what they believed. Versus having a, a strong belief that, yes, this definitely happened to me, you know. Uh, they wouldn't, as opposed to, you know, standing up in court and saying, yes, that person there. <laughs> but I suppose that ties into then the role of the experimenter or the interviewer. And th- this came up in a lot in um in the cases elizabeth loftus looked at especially with the satanic abuse panic in the 1980s where there were uh cases sometimes if there was some real abuse and sometimes there wasn't but where uh, an alleged abuse sexual abuse of children would grow in a community uh, and the police would come in and they would interview children over and over again uh, and they would say well your friend said that this happened did it happen and over time the children would would uh, agree and detail more memories and kind of these compliance effects and they, the allegations would become more and more extreme. So you had these kind of allegations of uh, satanic cults and really uh, over-the-top murder and so on. Um, and it later emerged that almost all of this stuff was was completely false. But the role of the person there um, to cement the confabulation. So I, I ask you a question, you speculate, and then I cement, well, yes, you know, tell me more about that thing that you speculated, which seems to have an interactive role in forming the memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it comes back again, I suppose, to the fact that there's an interesting aspect of memory that when we recall something, what effectively happens is that memory becomes active again. And while it's active, people have demonstrated in the lab that during that, they call it the label period, where it's active and malleable again, you can either strengthen the memory, you can update it and add new information in, or you can weaken it or alter it, or in some cases, eradicate it entirely. So they showed this in about 2000 in uh, animal models with uh, Kareem Nader in his lab, where it's a phenomenon they call reconsolidation, where you can lay down a memory in, let's say, a rat, where he's put in a particular cage, and while he's in the cage, you pair a light with a shock. So he learns this association between a, a shock and seeing a light. And then if you return the animal to the same cage, you've reinstated that context. So you've reactivated the sort of basis of that memory. Normally you've shined the light and he will cower expecting the shock. But while he's in that cage, if you inject anisomycin into his hippocampus, which interferes with protein synthesis and other chemical processes, then you shine the light and he does nothing. He stands there perfectly happy. Now, if you do that injection in a different cage, in a different context, it doesn't interfere with that memory trace and he'll still cower in response to the light. So, now this is difficult to do in humans, ethically, obviously, and for lots of reasons, but it's a bit like, I suppose, if you're five years old and you're in school and the teacher says, Paris is the capital of France, and this is a new fact you've never heard before. The child will go home and sleep 
and consolidate that memory trace so that they'll remember where they were when they learned this new fact, who was there, who said it, who was sitting beside them, how they felt, all these different contextual factors. So the second day the child goes into school and the teacher says, remember yesterday we said Paris was the capital of France. And that memory trace is active again. Now you can update that memory if the teacher says it's also home to a famous landmark, the Eiffel Tower. And that piece of information will become incorporated into the child's memory of Paris being the capital of France. But if you were somehow allowed to inject a chemical like anisomycin into that child's hippocampus, you could in theory weaken that memory trace or wipe it out entirely like they did with the rats in, in the, the Nader study. Now, the other thing that seems to act in a similar way to anisomycin is something as simple as stress. Stress is really bad for protein synthesis and that can really disrupt someone's ability to remember something. So if you give people a list of words to learn and then reinstate the context of the learning, but also stress them out, using ethical means of stressing people, then you can again interfere with their accuracy of recall later on. So again, it goes back to the fragility of memory because of the nature of memory and the fact that it's a reliving or a re-experiencing of something that's happened in the past. And has there been any work done? Because um, I know this anisomycin finding, we were studying it in college, which was 10 years ago. So has there been any work done with people with, say, PTSD, maybe using virtual reality or something to put them in the, re the initial experience and then using anisomycin or similar chemicals? Yeah, so this work, the, the really practical application of a lot of the reconsolidation work has been for helping people with PTSD. So what they do with, say, veterans of Gulf War or Iraq or various, you know, troubled hotspots, is in therapeutic situations they get them to relive or re-experience the event that happened whatever traumatic event had occurred and while they relive it in a safe environment they re-experience all the the emotions and they treat them with things like beta blockers or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication which seems to help eradicate the negative emotions associated with reliving the event without actually wiping out the memory itself because obviously there would be ethical issues involved with removing the memory of something that happened. But it does seem to help treat the traumatic re-experiencing of the event. So it dampens down the emotional response to it. And it seems very effective for doing that. So are they using um, anisomycin in that? Or is it only just recall and give a stress-reducing chemical like a beta blocker? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be anisomycin because that would disrupt the content of the memory itself, which, you know, we're getting into territory of eternal sunshine and, and that sort of thing which, <laughs> okay which you don't want to do fascinating so that's interesting so but th that seems like something that you could potentially do yourself in a sort of a biohack way if you i don't know if you if you applied something as simple as uh, meditation yoga um and had had structured remembrance of, of a traumatic memory uh, around that that, that you could potentially um, take away some of the strength of the trauma? Yeah, I mean, probably not to the level of PTSD, which is obviously you know, a very extreme case of this sort of thing. But if you had something that was vaguely upsetting that had happened to you and you found yourself reliving, then something like meditation might be a good way to sort of smooth out some of the, uh, the traumatic um, aspects of, of remembering that event. Either that or you'd associate meditation with it forever after. Well, that, yeah, it could go the other way, but hopefully not. I was involved yeah, in a research uh, um, project in, uh, in UCC where we were looking at um, people who were caring for family members with uh, dementia, which would be associated with high heightened levels of, of stress. But the, we, we did have some evidence of um, compared to a, of, uh, a control group of participants with lower stress of poor performance on memory memory tests associated with hippocampal function and we were also we were doing interventions with using mindfulness-based stress reduction so this is kind of a um it, it wouldn't be kind of as specified towards a particular memory as the ptsd example but it's just a more general way of uh, managing of stress management using kind of meditative techniques and there, there was we did have some initial evidence they were kind of performing better over time at the these kind of hippocampally mediated uh, um memory uh, tests as well just out of curiosity i always wonder when people do studies like that do you then have you then applied these kind of stress reduction techniques to your own life or? i've was i've kind of I've fallen a bit out of practice in in uh, using mindfulness although i'm kind of I, I don't have a huge amount of stress in my life at the moment so I, it's definitely something i'll have in the back pocket if i'm going through a, <laughs> a stressful time again really got to push you to make these notes in a more stressful way so, so you can <laughs> so we can have the intervention and carry a little experiment on there 
<laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But no, I was involved. I was kind of, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of, uh, I, I had taken part in the mindfulness class as well to get a sense of, of these kind of meditative techniques. So fantastic. So, so we're just going to do uh, two, two more sections and that'll be us done. Uh, so the next one is why do memories fail? What is it about how we encode memory on a biological level? Why is it useful for memory to be labeled as you described? Why not have uh, an eidetic memory? I suppose I mentioned kind of um, executive kind of top down kind of processes both uh, earlier. And I guess like if you think about kind of our attention or how much information we can actually take in on an ongoing basis, there's this kind of a famous kind of bottleneck there in terms of um, how much information we can hold in working memory or in short term memory or even just how much kind of informa- information we can take from from the environment at large. So, you know, we people kind of like to think that they if something's kind of quite significant or if an event is is um, is something that's important to them that they I suppose intuitively we, we might like to think that we'd remember it very well because it's important to us but often like when we're under conditions of stress our, our the aperture of attention like our attention becomes very focused on very small details or the very key events mm-hmm. key details of the events that are occurring to us so the actual amount of information we can encode about autobiographical events can sometimes be quite quite slim and then when we try to go to these kind of reconstructive if we try to reconstruct the memory then afterwards we might have to flesh out a lot of details that might not have actually been encoded in the first place so it's almost like the fovea it feels like when we look at something that we see a whole image but really we just have this one point of clarity which is moving very fast and 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 filling it in and we're we're imaginatively filling it in in a productive sense we're not really seeing everything we're only seeing a very small part of it so memory seems to or the senses that lay down memories in the first place seem to work in the same way yeah i think we we can rely on gist quite a lot um and we can be exposed to something very regularly and not necessarily remember it we can if you think of the the google um lettering you know we we know the word is google we know that there's probably blue and red and yellow and maybe green letters but which letter is which color i i can't remember um probably look at it most days but being able to pair the right color to the right letter is not something that we typically have to do so we don't remember if the g is blue or you know the o is yellow which brings into say in salience as well like how yeah. important yeah. is it we for don't need to necessarily remember that the same with ebay you know it's probably the same primary colors for the different letters but unless it's important and it's necessary for us to remember it we probably won't expend too many resources on learning that particularly if we know it's very accessible you know via our phones or whatever um so in terms of i suppose why memory is like that i think it's probably for the example of the the little kid in school um so that we can learn new things but also add new information to those memories that's probably the the reason that memories are so flexible and so malleable so that we can have a recollection of event events and facts and details but also incorporate new information into that memory which will maybe make our lives easier in some way so in evolutionary terms we might have you know, our, our ancient ancestors might have found a, a good place for shelter, let's say, um, which would be represented as a nice memory of a safe place that you can shelter in, you know, harsh conditions. But if you subsequently learn that it's inhabited by a bear, that's a piece of information that would be useful to update into your memory of this being a, a nice cave. So I think it does a very important, I suppose, um, utility to being able to update memory traces and information and that i suppose would apply equally to trauma because you know if you if you're um if you know intellectually a bear is in a cave that's not a huge uh necessarily going to uh, affect you on a day-to-day basis but if you have had a conditioning experience where you've been scared by the bear you know you know to avoid caves it's going to generalize and equally if you then go into a cave and you go into another cave and they're not all full of bears over time the trauma will decrease and so you're not just avoiding all caves forever because of this one so you can you can see why it might be useful for memory to become flexible in that way yeah and that actually touches on an idea to do with one of the influential theories of memory uh which is called multiple trace theory which is that the more exposures of a particular type of event you have the more generalized it becomes and this is one idea of how memories can transition from being autobiographical which is a memory of you experiencing a certain thing and being physically present for it versus semantic memories, which are just general knowledge and knowledge of how things work in the world. So 
one of the key differences seems to be for autobiographical memories, you can remember the context. So if you go back to the five-year-old in school, they're told on the very first day that Paris is the capital of France. They've never heard this before. So they'll remember the fact, they'll remember the teacher, they'll remember where they were sitting and all these different contextual events. But if we think of that fact that Paris is the capital of France, I can't remember the first time I heard that. I doubt if you can remember the first time you heard that because we hear it so many times subsequently in books, on television, in different places at home, in school, that that trace is now independent of any one event or one particular instance. So it somehow has become a fact rather than a particular memory. And it would be the same for caves. You would learn that caves are generally safe, sometimes have dangers within them. So it, it transitions from being a specific one-off memory of an event to a general awareness or a knowledge of a category of, of stimuli, let's say. Fantastic. Okay, so on a practical note then, uh, as a takeaway, so we talked about um, the, the, the dangers and the utility of, of the flexibility of memory. What can people do to improve their memory in their everyday lives? What are some practical steps that people can take, especially con- ones that are counterintuitive or less well-known? Um, there, well, there are different memory techniques. There are various techniques people have used <clears throat> going way back to the ancient Greeks. So the method of loci is one where you, if you've got a, a list of information you want to recall, you imagine, the Greeks used to imagine uh, a temple uh, with various pillars. And if they wanted to recall the different arguments in their speech, they would picture each arg- argument attached to a pillar and they would mentally navigate through so they would encounter the next argument as they went through this mental image of a a temple Um, and you can do a version of that yourself if if you have a shopping list of items you want to buy in the supermarket um, you can imagine your house and you can imagine your front door with say a string of sausages attached to the front door for some reason you go into the hall and there's some eggs on the table with the telephone as you go up the stairs there are rashers on the steps there's bread at the top of the stairs. So when you're back in the supermarket later, you mentally travel through your house and you encounter each of these objects. So attaching things to something that's very familiar seems to be a big aspect of the method of loci. So you need to know the layout of your house very well, let's say. So that seems to be a, an effective technique for memory. Um, and that pops up in various areas of fiction like Sherlock Holmes was meant to have a very elaborate mind palace where mm-hmm. he could store huge amounts of information Hannibal Lecter the same he had this elaborate gigantic mind palace for storing lots of information um, so that's that, that's quite useful for maybe learning lists of things that you need to, to go through um, in general though what seems to be effective for memory is to associate new information with existing information if things can be attached to again things you're very familiar with then it seems to allow you to recall them more easily because they're attached to familiar things. And I suppose the other thing would be fleshing out the the broader context of events. So not just remembering a fact, but remembering the details surrounding that fact. So conjuring visual imagery associated with a piece of information or trying to activate different sense modalities to recall the visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory aspects of a new piece of information again seems to enhance the recall of that information later on so when a lot of people are yeah interviewed about the the method of loci i mean they say it takes practice but they, they say also to try and um it's more memorable if it's quite incongruous or if it's very vivid i suppose as well so say with the the eggs like if you imagine something like smashing the eggs or a chicken coming coming out of it like something that's quite uh kind of visually kind of striking or quite specific to to egg, eggs as well like if there's a something hatching out of it as well like so yeah something like novelty or uniqueness or elaborateness these factors seem to be very important at the time of learning Mm. for for later recall in a sense it's counterintuitive because you'd imagine if you want to let's say you want to remember this is seven things then the more detail you add the more things but actually it seems like from what you're saying that if you have rich imagery especially if it's moving and colorful and distinct and unique that actually will enhance the memory yeah um, and again, I think it's probably because you're just activating a more distributed network in the brain rather than these little subsets of areas. And they'll probably be chunked together. So it might seem like more information, but in terms of units of information, mm. they're probably the same same number. So it's the same amount of, of cognitive effort, I yeah. suppose, to be done. And if it has narrative drive as well, like you were saying, how you progress through the, the, um, the, the house, for example. And I suppose if one event kind of, or one item on your shopping list is an event in a story that leads to another, it kind of acts as a prompt to kind of bring you through the various kind of items within the list as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a natural progression or sequence that, that you can just follow. 
is memory uh, muscular in the sense that the more we actively participate in constructing memories, the better we become at it? Um, I suppose that's the rationale behind the reminiscence study that we're trying to do. Um, but in general, in terms of brain tissue, it does seem to be the case that you know the brain is constantly changing its physical structure. It's very plastic. And from what we know about connections between cells, cells that do not talk to each other frequently, connections that aren't used very often, will atrophy and will go away. So it's it's the basis of this idea of synaptic plasticity, mm-hmm. that the more certain pathways are activated, the more likely they are to continue being active in future, mm-hmm. whereas the ones that aren't used will wither away and, and disappear. So it's a case of, you know, continually traveling well-worn pathways should keep them relatively clear of weeds, to use a yeah, an analogy. <laughs> what what about um, vitamin intake or whatever? I, I know there's there's quite a lot of stuff coming out recently about um, depression and vitamin D, and we we all we live in again you know, at the northern hemisphere. We don't get as much sun as we need. Um, but is there a similar thing for memory? Is there anything that you can take that's going to, um, you know, make your consolidation of memories healthier? Your recall in terms of diet, mm. I suppose. Well. Maybe this is one specific example, but as people age, for, for example, a lot of people will be concerned about kind of maintaining their memory as, as they, they get older. So avoiding kind of uh, risk factors for, for problems like dementia. So um, I suppose key kind of broad kind of health issues there would be um, maintaining a healthy blood pressure, you know, mm-hmm. to avoid kind of the vascular risk factors for dementia. There's a recent study from France as well. It showed that kind of one of the major kind of modifiable risk factors for for dementia is alcohol consumption or heavy alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. So um, avoiding kind of uh, chronic kind of heavy alcohol consumption is is a major um, factor for kind of maintaining kind of cognitive health. That's, that's a really good one that you you brought that up because um, I know there's a syndrome Korsakoff syndrome people who are long-term alcoholics where they um their vit- vitamins are leached out of their diet and they they have really severe brain damage which can result in the inability to recall or to lay down memories yeah um it's a timing the deficiency i think isn't it which results in very similar um symptoms to people like hm so they've trouble making new memories and there's some retrograde amnesia as well so it seems very severe um which really results only from very excessive alcoholism for a very long period of time um but I suppose in general, in terms of brain health and, and diet, um, it's an old wives' tale that fish is a good brain food, but they've subsequently discovered that um, particular protein in fish oils, as protein kinase C, is really good for myelinating axons. So um, fish does really seem to be good for, for brains. So the old wives knew what they were talking about. With the, the omega, like having the right balance of, kind of, of, of omegas, is, it can be, can be a good way of kind of um, a good dietary means for... As, as one aspect of, of um, um, a nutritional pattern that, that, that's good for, for um, managing depression, along with, say, things like exercise and, mm-hmm. and obviously psychotherapy and other. Yeah. One kind of question for me, final things. I, I always personally think that um, as a culture, as a society, we're, we're chronically under-socialized. And we, people talk a lot about the Dunbar number, um, but, but in practice in the West, uh, the number number is the idea that in the environment in which we evolved, we had a certain number of people in our community that we would have relationships with. It's usually something like 150 or 200. But in practice, we, we, we know a lot of people, but in terms of intimate relationship, we have very few. And there's a famous Bowling Alone uh, book that came out from anthropologists in the US a few years ago. And the idea that that uh, very, you know adults in in the US in particular have almost no friends and stuff. I'm wondering what the social, the impact of under socialization on memory and because again to do with your studies you know uh, intuitively I, I would think you think of times in my life which are most vividly remembered are the times where I was most sociable and most socialized and times which sort of fade into uh, a, a dull patina or whatever are times where you were working so much or whatever that that there wasn't enough social stimulation is there something to that or um I'd imagine on, on a practical level the more people you're exposed to the more rich you're multi-sensory experience is going to be so there'll be people there with maybe different views you'll physically be looking at different people they'll have different voices different you'll be in different environments with them compared to when you're on your own i suppose it can become very schema like that you know you get up you work you come home you watch telly you go to sleep so i think exposure to yeah groups of people probably will facilitate memories because you'll be exposed to a wider range of experiences through them but also you'll share recollections of shared events after the fact as well. So I'd imagine 
yeah, it seems like there are probably multiple reasons why communal experiences and communities would be better for memory than being isolated. I suppose we can't have this without having a delightful, irresponsible smartphones give you cancer kind of moment as well. Where <laughs> they do give you cancer. With, <laughs> with um, but with um, you know, social media and, and social networking, like this kind of the this kind of I suppose this infamous kind of echo chamber effect. There's this kind of paradox that you know we have such a wide gamut of of opinions on the internet, but then a lot of people kind of are, are tend to kind of lean toward lean towards people who have kind of similar. Mm-hmm. views as them to kind of reinforce their own kind of opinions so at, at the same time as people have so many such a wide diversity of, of opinions in theory available to them they uh, are exposing themselves perhaps to a more restricted kind of um, um, set of opinions or viewpoints of the world or... I, I know that there's some research on um, we haven't got notes on it but there's some research on uh, for example in long-term marriages um, couples uh, serving as off-board memories for each other and reconstructing memory based on telling one another stories and in a way I suppose what social media platforms are doing is they're saying you know we, we can recall it for you wholesale sort of to quote Philip K. Dick that they're, they'll be your memory and Facebook very you know very explicitly every year you know oh, this is what happened to you three years ago on this day they're they're selling themselves as a way to recall your life um, which which is sort of re- maybe replacing a more rich social recollection mm. um yeah, I mean, I suppose in a way you can argue photographs do the same job in some ways. But I suppose in more broad terms, technology probably does have the scope to be very beneficial for people, say, in the early stages of Alzheimer's or dementias. Um, and this life logging kind of phenomenon which has come around where people can wear these life logging cameras around their neck and record things that happen to them on a daily basis in a live streaming type thing could be very useful for people in the early stages of memory loss or memory decline. So it's probably, you know, being equally used for positive and negative. Yeah, there's there's always that dual side of thinking because on, on the other side of life logging, you have daily vlogging where people construct their lives in a wholly artificial way in order to be entertaining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. you know, if you if you were to live in that in that, in that way, you'd have a very pallid experience of, of you know, Jake Paul comes to mind. This was recently controversial for you. I suppose one uh, one aspect of memory, I, we, I suppose you've talked quite a lot about re, uh, kind of long term recall of the past. But uh, one thing we only very briefly touched on was kind of prospective memory, which is remembering to do things which is mm. perhaps one of the most difficult um and actually useful also aspects of memory to, to exercise without relying on some kind of external aid so uh, most i mean i would heavily depend on my google calendar to to uh, yep. to, uh, yeah. to uh i remember in college when i i used to regularly miss lectures which sounds ridiculous because you have the same lectures all term but i would every week i would miss at least one lecture until I got a smartphone in, I think it was the third year or something, and suddenly I would never miss lecture. It was amazing. It's a super useful tool. So we, I think we discount the utility of smartphones at our peril. And I think it is it is one aspect of memory that's quite difficult to study kind of in an experimental way, particularly in those kind of short-term experiments, because often you, uh, the kind of paradigm that, that some people have used is you kind of ask someone to remember to do something, uh, say half an hour later, and they then they have to remember to do it. But it's quite tricky to to get a large number of stimuli because with that, because when the person has to remember something, then they might reactivate the 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 the, the tasks that they had to do. So it starts to move into working memory rather than say with the typical perspective memory is like you decide to do something a week ago and then you you have to remember it like you know days and days later that's so, so difficult I, I know we have the bins here are every second tuesday and i have never once remembered which the second tuesday was going to be because that's just not how my brain works <laughs> uh, i do have an alert on my phone i forget to look at it but that's a whole other issue um so yeah if you forget something blame your brain is the, <laughs> the moral of the and, the, and the, ideally the, remove it <laughs> then you have to remember to check your phone so yeah exactly so richard thank you so so much for your time and your yeah, incredibly informed and interesting uh, perspective thanks for having me it's been great where can people find your uh, work if they want to read more of it or oh um i suppose it's not really out yet but um i'm on twitter um and i have a departmental website and the minute um, psychology page um and what's your twitter handle oh uh, it's um at or neuro so or r-o-c-h-e-n-e-u-r-o so people can feel free to have a look at that it's probably 90 percent neuroscience 10 percent football <laughs> and uh, Andrew, where can people find your uh, your blog and your Twitter? Uh, so you can follow me at AP Allen One, uh, and we also have a project for the Reminiscence uh, Recall Era. So that's R E C A L L 
E I or E. And uh, my blog is Andrew's Psychology Archive dot blogspot. A complete archive of all of psychology curated by Andrew. And you can find my work at uh, at Gareth Stack uh, on Twitter and GarethStack.com. And if you have any comments or ideas for a future episode or things that we've gotten wrong or updates or personal memory related anecdotes that you'd like to share, please get in touch with us uh, either through tr- Twitter or you can um, email uh, at uh, deadmediumproductions at gmail.com. We'd absolutely love to hear from you um, with podcasts. You know, you'd be amazed at how little feedback there can be even when you're getting a lot of listeners. So please do uh, let us know what you think and what topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode. We'll be back next month with another uh, Psychology in Mind. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.